Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, November 10th. Canada's Indigenous community has played an important role in Canada's military history, but has largely gone unrecognized. We'll talk about ways to ensure future generations know the contributions made by our Aboriginal vets when we talk to Chuck Isaacs, Métis Nation of Alberta veteran and president of the Aboriginal Veteran Society of Alberta. What next steps does Canada need to take towards a net zero future and a leading role on green technology? We talk about Canada's role at the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference with Josipa Petronich, President and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. How does the time change and the changing seasons impact our mental health? Joining us for our mental health moment is Karen Gallagher-Burt, social worker and mental health advocate. And today is Guinness World Records Day. Do you have your eyes set on crushing a world record? We talk about how to make your record a reality with Mike Marcotte, Guinness Book of Records adjudicator. How can we better support Canada's Indigenous veterans and ensure future generations know all about those contributions made by our Aboriginal veterans? Joining us to talk about it is Chuck Isaacs, Métis Nation of Alberta veteran and president of the Aboriginal Veteran Society of Alberta. Good morning to you, Chuck. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning to you. Let's talk about your history. Serving in the armed forces certainly runs in your family. You are a third generation serviceman. Why was serving in the armed forces important to you and to your entire family? Well, it was important to me because I I saw the the uh, veterans that were around me as a child, and it, I saw some of the ones that were Korean War vets that uh, worked with my dad, and uh, my dad was a Korean War vet, and I just saw their their lifestyle and their camaraderie between them, and it was something that drew me towards life in the military. I think I was maybe seven years old when I knew that that's the life I wanted to have for myself. Your thoughts, Chuck, on the importance of recognizing the contributions of Métis and Indigenous Canadian military service members? Well, as an Indigenous soldier, I... uh, I, uh, the history of, of Indigenous fighting for Canada or the uh, British Commonwealth prior to the creation of Canada, the contributions are without the Indigenous warriors in the War of 1812 and, and other wars, Canada wouldn't be Canada today. It's, their contribution is, is unprecedented. And considering... Considering the fact that before they came home from the First World War, Canada annexed huge portions of land from First Nations and Métis communities. And then when they returned, much of that land was given away to the soldiers that were returning. But the First Nations soldiers and some of the Métis soldiers were denied access to that program because they were under the Indian agent and... uh, it's, the access just wasn't available to them. There's obviously... So, sorry, continue. So Veterans Affairs says that there was between three and 5,000 Indigenous soldiers in in the First World War and the Second World War. I would challenge that number. I just... At a time of assimilation, if a person could blend into society and not be labeled as a... as an and forced... Their kids forced into a residential school, and they blended in as much as possible. It was, it wasn't a thing to be proud of being a indigenous person. So 
So I would put those numbers closer to thirty to fifty thousand. And uh, here alone in in uh, Alberta at Métis Crossing, there's a Veterans Monument. There's already two thousand names of World War II soldiers on it. Another eighteen hundred, I believe, First World War. And there's another near three thousand names to put on it. So right off the bat, Alberta would blow the number out of the water. How do you think, Chuck, moving forward, we can ensure that Métis veterans, you know, the history, the the numbers, inaccurate as they appear to be, obviously, as you say, you know, how do we make sure that their their contributions and, and the, the, you know, end result of, of that number of Indigenous people being in the wars is recognized and that we teach young kids that history as well? Well, I think the big thing is, is the community has to take control of that. Indigenous stories need to be told by indigenous people from an indigenous perspective and that's it's coming along as as people are proud to be indigenous they will bring their stories forward some will be lost but with through genealogy the uh they can find they can find soldiers more easily now with the government databases and the genealogy they do the research they can tie the names together and you know i'm sure it's a laborious task but in a fairly short period of time they've created a huge database and i know that'll build the problem with it is is most indigenous organizations are not funded by veterans affairs canada so it slows the process a little when everybody's a volunteer Really? So there's no federal funding coming to help make sure that these numbers, the names, the, the, the what what these Indigenous people did during the wars, that's not being kept up to date? Well, the problem with it is, is it's, there's a lot of non-Indigenous organizations that collect money saying they're collecting it for Indigenous veterans. And that's not really the case. So many of them have no indigenous veterans in their organization or they have a few token ones speckled through the organization and the chief goal of their work is to gain access to the funding and the reality of it is is why i say it has to be community-based is because the people have to have the will and the interest to dig into it and find the people like people that live in rural areas of the country up in the north, it, they have no internet access. The, a lot of the old guys are pretty much deaf, so they can't talk on the telephone. It, like, it has to be something that the funding is made available so that the community can go out, reach out to the ones that are still alive, and reach out to the families and get any information they can and go through the uh, archives and find this information out it's a very laborious task but it needs to be something that's funded to the communities so that they can get behind it and push it forward thanks so much for your time a great conversation chuck this morning appreciate it we'll send people to aboriginalveterans.com great website for great resources thanks so much appreciate it thank you thank you chuck isaacs metis nation of alberta veteran president of the aboriginal veterans society of alberta again aboriginalveterans.com 
What does Canada need to do to move towards a net zero future and take a leading role in green technology? Well, this morning we're talking about Canada's role at COP27 with Yasipa Petronich, who is president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. Good morning, Yasipa. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, world leaders, experts all descending upon Egypt this week for COP27, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. What's Canada's role at this particular conference? Well, I mean, basically our role is to prove that we're not going to be the energy pigs of the future, right? That's basically our role right now as Canadians. We're the worst in the world for consuming energy per person. So ultimately our goal as a government is to prove that there's money behind what we're saying, which is we're going to reduce pollution, and then we're actually going to go ahead and do it. It's going to be a tough uphill battle, though, to convince folks. Is this then what the the rest of the world, I mean, how many countries are on board with working towards this, you know, the, the, the net zero future? I mean, there's a couple hundred countries in the world officially declared. If you look at the United Nations General Assembly, the majority now have some kind of statement about climate action. But it's a tiny handful, and mostly in the developed world, where we actually have things like carbon pricing or electric um, subsidies or green energy subsidies. So you can basically count on two hands the number of countries that have started to invest in this space seriously. And most of them are in Europe or China. Uh, So that's pretty much where the bulk of investment in green tech and new tech is happening today. You say Canada's an energy pig, but I mean, this country, we've we've done well so far, haven't we? Or or have we not? (laughs) No, we haven't, you know, and that's unfortunate. Like, it's it's a reality that we've built up the wonderful life that we have based on natural resources, but it's not all about oil and gas. You know, I'm a born and raised Albertan. I know lots of people like to point to oil and gas, and it's true. Like, that is a part of how we built a really great life for ourselves in the last 150 years. But the truth is it's not just there. We've also built these really big cities with really large highways, with really large homes. We all drive SUVs. We like to fly to Cuba for vacations. We live in expensive lifestyle. And I know a lot of Canadians don't feel like that when you're facing inflation and the price of bananas is going up. But the reality is in comparison to the vast majority of the world, even in Europe, even in the United States, even in South America, and especially compared to the developing world, we really, we really live an extremely high quality of life. So what we have to figure out is how can we keep living that really great quality of life with all the stuff that we have by using like a third, a fraction of the energy that we use today. And the only way to do that is to actually transition our transportation sector, our building sector, and our agricultural sector to new fuels. And that's tough. It costs a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of money. And right now, most governments have not dedicated nearly enough money, which means as taxpayers, we really haven't voted in governments and we haven't chosen to say, okay, you know what? In in exchange for the great life that I've lived and exchange for building a better life for the kids of the future, I'm going to actually give up some of my quality of life and start paying into a system that's going to subsidize some of these new technologies. Yeah, and I don't know if Canadians, you know, are, are ready to, to go that route. But obviously, you know, as we talk about transitioning to greener transportation, carbon neutral, you know, a world that's carbon neutral. What does that look like for us? What do yeah. we need? How do we move that forward? What do we need to be doing better in Canada? Yeah, well, I'll give you two quick examples that people can actually really latch on to because it affects your daily life. One is roads. 
the way that we use roads. In Canada today, we have very few toll roads. Um, and if, if you live in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, which, which is not where your audience is today, but just as a recent example, a few years ago, Mayor John Tory tried to get a little toll on the highway that goes into Toronto, just, you know, basically a couple bucks. And that was shot down by government. The reality is most highways in developing countries, including even a small country like Croatia, every highway is tolled. And there's a reason for that. It pays for the infrastructure, but it also forces people to figure out, should I be driving or should it be hopping on the train, taking a bus or moving closer into the city or where my job is? We don't toll roads. We don't price roads. If the Deerfoot in Calgary had even a 50 cent toll on it, that would generate quite a lot of money, but also a household decision as to whether I drive my truck every day to work. So those are some of the things that have to happen. Those are municipal discussions. At the provincial, federal, and municipal level, the second big thing that we can do that's a really easy fix is transit. And most people, you know, lots of people don't take transit, but a lot of Canadians do. There's millions of Canadians every day that take transit. And the thing about transit is transit buys in bulk, right? Like there's lots of buses in Calgary. There's lots of buses in Edmonton. And transit doesn't usually buy like one bus. They'll buy like 50, 100, 200. And using public transit fleets, which we already subsidize as taxpayers, to uh, be the demand for hydrogen and battery electrification products, that's an immediate winner. We have to provide transit already. We already subsidize it. It it buys in bulk. That creates an immediate demand for the marketplace. And that allows utilities and the new energy providers of the future, the hydrogen producers, to have an obvious immediate clientele. And the thing about transit is it's not going to save the planet on its own by reducing enough pollution. But when you electrify transit and you get the hydrogen out the door for transit at that level, it immediately supports the supply chain for trucks. And trucks and freight are a huge part of our pollution problem in the country. So those are two things that as Canadians we can do. It will cost us money if we toll our roads. It will cost us money if we get transit to go green. But it's the kind of stuff that can transform our entire system without killing us in terms of our quality of life degradation. You see, but are there countries that we can look at that are are doing perhaps a better job, a job like you're suggesting we might get to one day, perhaps at prioritizing the environmentally friendly public transit system, for example? Yeah, for sure. I mean, everybody always looks to Europe, right? And Europe in the middle of an energy crisis because of the war in Ukraine in particular is not backing down when it comes to investing in green transit. Now, in Europe, if you look at most European Union uh, states, transit is a lot higher than in Canada. Like, transit usage is a lot higher. Even if you look at rail, it's mostly about passengers, not about freight. And so those governments have chosen to continue pooling money between big procurements for hydrogen buses, big procurements for electric buses, electric coaches, electric and hydrogen rail, and they pooled their funds across the European Union, and they're investing in that stuff, even in the face of an extreme energy crisis and skyrocketing prices. Now, that's happened not all of a sudden. It's happened over the last 20 years of incremental government after government socializing the idea that this is in the favor of every citizen. Europe doesn't have the kind of land expense Canada has, though. So I would add the caveat that it's easier in Europe to do this largely because you have nowhere to grow. Like, where are you going to put new suburbs? Lots of the cities are highly, highly constrained. In Canada, well, we've got the prairies, right? Like, we can keep building another subsidy beyond the airport in Calgary, uh, another, you know, area or, or suburban environment. And so we don't have natural barriers that tell us stop building out 
start building up and building density. And without those barriers, naturally, we're going to have to have communities like cities and basically municipal politicians saying we're going to enforce some artificial barriers. So those are those are examples in Europe where we can look to, even in the face of diesel and gasoline prices that are through the roof, those countries are not stopping their joint procurements and investments in transit. And that that's going to basically set them up to be able to compete for the future in the next century. Controversial yet important topic. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yesipa Petronich is president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. How does the change in season, the change in time that we do each and every year impact our mental health? Joining us to talk about our mental health moment is Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate and social worker. Good morning, Karen. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Always a good time to be talking about our mental health, always in need of a little boost. So let's talk about time change. How big of an impact does the time change really have on our mental health, would you say? You know, I think it has a big impact. Um, Number one is that actually switch in timing really does reset the circadian rhythm of your body, right? You're trying to adjust to that. Never mind if you have small humans in your life who don't adjust as well, which is also a big disruption. But the worst part of it is, is actually that uh, sunlight, that loss of sunlight for us, because that has a big effect physically, but also on your mood and how, how you feel about the day and how you feel starting in the dark and ending in the dark. And I would think this cold weather also, because I know it affects my mood. I think it's probably affecting everybody, right? We got really walloped with this cold after being spoiled with such warm weather. Oh, 100%. I was personally down in California and I came back to this and I have not had a day without a headache because I'm hunched up, I'm pulled in because the cold, I'm adjusting to it. So that's also added on the physical side. And it's interesting because um, I can remember my parents when they immigrated to Canada from England would put us out in the, in the wintertime in a pram to, to get sun. And the research behind that has proven that we need that. One of the recommendations I've read about and I try to practice is when the sun does come up and we have beautiful blue skies, go outside and stand there for three to five minutes and get some of that sunshine on your face, feel the effects of it, because it does make a difference in how your body functions. And then little things, keep exercising, Um, take your vitamin D, you know, maybe increase it in the winter. You've got to take care of the physical side to help the mental side for this one. Yeah, I was going to say even just, you know, bundle up, put your warm coat on and just, you know, lift your face to the sky and enjoy that sunshine because sometimes we don't see it for a long period of time. Yeah, it's 100%. And not a lot of us, I think I find a lot of my uh, girlfriends particularly, um, we all joke about sweat, it's sweater and boot, boot weather. Um, and we like to bring those things out. And honestly, there is a comfort to that if you can make it part of your ritual is how do I make warmth for myself and how do I pull that sun in? If you have the resources, there's nothing better than one of those light boxes um some of us were just impacted but others have seasonal affective disorder or sad and uh, that extra boost of light i know my partner has one that he sets up on his computer in the morning now and he puts it on for an hour and makes a big difference huh, okay you know mental health we think about just you know our heads and our brains but it really it's all encompassing isn't it when it comes to mind body and spirit and and the whole package Oh, so I wish you said it perfectly, and I wish that other folks could understand that. I, I, for the longest time, we've sort of pushed for mental health to be seen and addressed, but the truth is, is it needs to just be addressed as part of health. Um, it is part of who we are as human beings, and um, if you do any reading from some of the great authors, it's a Canadian doctor, Gabor Mate, and he writes about how 
stress and mental health concerns manifest in our body. And it really is. It's that connection all the way throughout um, and you have to take care of it all. So true. And, uh, you know, I wish kids would be taught a little bit more about that too in school. Like, you know, we need we need the, the R's and the math and all the other stuff, but we also need to be aware of mental health starting at a young age. You bet. And actually, there's a lot of um, different areas where they're starting some cool programs. I know in the hockey world, there's a neat program that's been started by a, an NHL player where they're teaching at about uh, nine-year-old level. They're teaching kids about combination of character building and caring for yourself. And at the same time, they're teaching the parents and the coaches so that they're both getting the same lessons. And I'm hopeful to see some great results from that because I think that that's, that's the key is that uh, the kids need to have it first mm-hmm. and then they'll help change the rest of us that are stuck in our ways. <laughs> so, so true. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Stay warm out there and uh, enjoy a little sunshine if you can get a peek of it. I will do that today. And you too, I understand there's a trip coming up, so you get some warmth and sunshine too. I'll hopefully bring some back for you as well. Okay. Okay, Thanks, Karen. Appreciate it. Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate, social worker. Yeah, uh, look up to the sky, get a little of that uh, vitamin sunshine. We'll need it and we'll get a little bit of it coming up tomorrow and through the weekend. Today is Guinness World Records Day. Do you have your eyes set on crushing a world record? Like maybe the record for most spoons balanced on a human body. By the way, it's 79. You can beat that, right? This morning, we're talking world records with Mike Marcotte, Guinness Book of Records adjudicator. Good morning to you, Mike. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Happy Guinness World Records Day. What do you do as an adjudicator? Are you the one that does all the counting of things? You got it, exactly. So an adjudicator is just the Latin word for judge. And so I travel throughout North America and I adjudicate uh, Guinness World Records attempts. I've uh, been an adjudicator for about five years and I've seen about 60 record attempts That's in my opinion. awesome. So much fun. What's the weirdest thing that you've seen people try to break a record for? Oh, that's a great question. There's no such thing as a weird record. Uh, <laughs> everyone's so passionate about what they are attempting. Uh, so everyone loves what they do. Um, I've seen some really amazing things, uh, and one of them that I really feel is amazing, and that is in Guinness World Records 2023, which is now available. It's a fantastic holiday gift, by the way, uh, is the longest fingernails on a pair of hands ever. So we have a new record holder for this. Her name is Diana Armstrong. She lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Collectively, her fingernails measure 42 feet, 10.4 inches. Stop it. Yeah, yeah, you have to go look it up on uh, GuinnessWorldRecords.com or on our YouTube channel. There's a really awesome video of her, how she does what she does every day. Like, how does she take a shower? How does she eat food? How does she sleep? Uh, Does she drive a car? All those questions are answered um, on our YouTube channel. It's really, really cool. Um, uh, She's been growing her nails since 1997. OMG. I'm grossed right (laughs) out, but she probably thinks that's fantastic. (laughs) She loves it, yeah, and she dedicates it to her daughter. Wow. Uh, so it's a really, a really touching story. That's amazing. Okay, so what does it look like? You know, if I decide, for example, I love chocolate, so I was looking up three chocolate bars in one minute. It doesn't seem like that's a great big feat. I feel like I could crush that record. How do I go about doing it? Well, that's a great question, uh, and we uh, encourage everyone to apply for Guinness with Records titles, and you are correct. The most chocolate bars eaten in one minute is uh, three. And uh, it's uh, actually held by two people right now currently. Uh, one of them is Joey Chestnut, who is the guy yeah. who eats all the hot dogs on the 4th of July in the United States, right? So um, what you want to do is head to GuinnessWorldRecords.com, and then there is, uh, you find a record that you really want to attempt, and then you just hit the orange Apply Now button. And then you'll be sent a list of guidelines 
and then you can attempt it yourself at your house. You could do it at the radio station. You could do it wherever you like. Um, and then you'll submit the evidence to us, and then we'll review it, and then we'll say, yep, you ate four. Congratulations. You're officially amazing. And then you'll be updated on our website. That is awesome. I love that you can now do it online. So is it just a sort of a continuous video you would have to take of whatever you're doing? Exactly. It does depend on the record, but most records require uh, people to submit a video of you doing the attempt. So that's uh, awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. There's video evidence, photo evidence that adjudicators look at uh, and that our staff looks at as well. Mike, of all the records that you've seen, even read in the books, is there one that you feel like you could crush? What's the one you could do? Oh, my gosh. That's a great question. So adjudicators are ineligible to be uh, Guinness World Records title holders. But if you could. Uh, If I could, gosh. Oh, that's such a good question. I would say that, um, you know, I would... I think it would be really cool to be the tallest human just for a day. <laughs> that would be. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. And one day yeah. would be fine, though. I think you're right. How, how tall is the tallest? I think one day would be really cool. How tall is the well, tallest? Just for one day. Um, how tall? So yeah. um, Wadlow is, uh, his last name is uh, Wadlow, and he is the tallest human. And he um, clocks in um, at over uh, eight feet tall. It is ridiculous. Wow. Um, he is an incredible human being, and he holds that Guinness World Records title, and he is we actually have meeting rooms dedicated to him in our offices around the world. That is fantastic. And the one that we talked about starting this morning was how many marshmallows you can stuff into your mouth. And that's, I'm shocked at the number. Oh my gosh, right? It's incredible. Yeah. And our record um, database has over 63,000 records in it. So, okay. you know, from marshmallows to stuff in your mouth to, I uh, just saw an attempt for the largest dog wedding ceremony. <laughs> Um, to uh, the most stickers on a car, which is the next attempt that I'm heading to this weekend. Um, there's so many different records that you can attempt, and we're always looking for new records. So if, you're, if your eyes are set on something else, we'd love for you to go to our website, GuinnessWorldRecords.com, and just attempt and, and apply for something that you are really passionate about. I love it. By the way, it's 77 marshmallows into someone's mouth. I'm, I'm sure there's somebody at home who thinks they can crush that. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it, and happy Guinness World Records Day. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Mike Marcotte, Guinness Book of Records adjudicator. And again, the Guinness, the website is guinnessworldrecords.com.